Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, may everyone here know that it will indeed be through the ages. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, followed each one of our lives from the time of our birth to this present moment. We pray that as we consider your word this morning, your spirit would lead and guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Pleasure to be with you this morning. You may recall that the last time I spoke but one, I was speaking about the children of God, and my purpose was to emphasize that, uh, to put it simply, we are in this together. That the, the scriptures do teach us that our Christian life and our Christian experience is not intended to be uh, exercised or experienced in isolation. And so we have the portrayal in the book of Exodus of the earthly children of God going through various stages of what you might call an analog of Christian experience, one by one, together, together. So this morning is actually, in some sense, um, the opposite. And I'm going to be speaking this morning, as the screen indicates, about uh, a very well-known personality in the Bible. That would be Jacob, Jacob, son of Isaac. <clears throat> By way of review, you're looking at um, about half of the book of Genesis. About half of the book of Genesis, from about chapter 28 to the end, is actually concerned with Jacob. Now, given the fact that we would be utterly lost theologically, historically, and in other ways without the book of Genesis, if God is giving half, almost half of that very first book of the Bible, the first book of the Pentateuch, if He's giving that to a person named Jacob, you can be rest assured that He's probably telling us that there's a lot to be learned from the life of Jacob. And by way of review, we can go back to a promise given to a man named Abraham in chapter 12, and then there is that promise to Isaac as opposed to Ishmael, and then from Isaac to Jacob by subterfuge. There's a word that I like, subterfuge, that Jacob tricked his father into thinking that he was his brother his twin brother, who was born before him. We don't know how many minutes before him, but it was his older brother, his older twin brother, and who had a very different character and a very different personality, but who was supposed to get the birthright and who did not by Jacob's trickery. And the etymology or the, the idea behind this, Yachub, Yachub, is a play on words. It means one who supplants, one who grasps the heel your brother's heel, and uh, gets what was supposed to go to him. We then come to uh, 
chapter 28 or so, with the beginning of Jacob, and Jacob uh, continues in that kind of vein, taking us actually right up to the end of the book. What is common through this, if you can see that, it is that this is the line of promise. The promise goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Ephraim, and in the same way that, not in the same way, in a way that's reminiscent of how Isaac blessed the wrong person. Jacob, in quotes, blessed the wrong person in the sense that Ephraim is younger than Manasseh, the difference being Jacob did it with his eyes open, and his son protested that the grandson was going to be blessed, the younger grandson. Did I say son? The younger grandson, uh, Ephraim, was going to be blessed instead of Manasseh. And that line of promise goes down into the 12 tribes, and number four child is Judah, the line of Judah. The staff would not depart from between his feet until Shiloh come. You can read about Shiloh in Joshua. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> here I am at 18 minutes to 12, proposing to take on 22 tap chapters of Genesis. This is obviously impossible, but I've been thinking a lot about these three icons, and fortunately in this day and age, an icon is something that just about everybody is almost like tired of seeing. You, you look at a computer and the screen, you should see my wife's screen. Oh my goodness. There's so many icons on that screen for starting so many different packages, it makes my head swim. <clears throat> I try to keep it down to a bare minimum and just stuff at the bottom. But I, I like that the Bible has given us certain images, certain, um, in literature it would be called an elite motif. Uh, the modern word seems to be trope, where you have an idea that is carried by something. And I just want to talk this morning about three of them. A ladder, Genesis 28. An injury, actually not to the knee, but that was the best I could come up with. And a staff, in the sense of a walking stick. The word Irish has come up a number of times this morning. I really don't know why. That is an Irish shillelagh, black thistle shillelagh. And um, that appears at the very end of Jacob's life and is mentioned in Hebrews 11, interesting, in, uh, interestingly enough. So, thinking about these things, we... Um, ooh, let me flatten that out a little bit. And why I call this message uh, Jacob's Reflections is that, is essentially, it, it is that last thing in his life, that um, fact that he leaned on his staff and worshipped, as it says in Hebrews 11. And I think we have to admit that all of us are going to that point in life where we will be maybe not standing up so straight and looking back on our lives as opposed to being in the middle of our Christian lives or at the beginning of our Christian experience. So these three, um, these three words um, I had fun with. Thank you to Steve's mother-in-law for uh, Akaba and Ipalara and Opa. We all end up leaning on our Opa toward the end, I think. But um, these three things are one after another, um, with chapters in between, of course, and I think they're very significant in the life of Jacob. As you go out in your daily lives this week, 
my hope is that you will be able to remember these three things, these three icons, these three um, images, the image of a ladder or a liter in German, the image of an injury or a schaden or a, an ipalara or a blessure in French, an injury, and the third one, the image of a walking staff, which may, in fact, have been something like a crutch. So that we, we would imagine that there is a, I think there is, a spiritual progression in our lives. At some point, God awakens us to His reality, and we become extremely convinced of that reality, the reality of God and of heaven, and yet our, you might say, theological sophistication, our ability to, to analyze that event actually might be quite primitive. It might be quite primitive. The, uh, the next event that I'll be talking about is, is when Jacob wrestles with the angel. I will talk more about who that was, resulting in his limping for the rest of his life. And finally, looking back on his life and looking at his grandsons and making, in fact, predictions about the various tribes, as it says in Hebrews 11:6, leaning on his staff, he worshipped. He worshipped. He's the only hero of the faith in Hebrews 11, of which it is said that he worshipped. That is a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing. Finally, before I continue with the actual passage in Genesis 28, there is a sense in which none of this applies to someone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. I believe that these um, communications, these three things, that the message that they bring makes sense to a person who is born again. They make sense to a person who is saved. There's a sense in which they, they may seem to apply to you if you're not saved. That may be an indication that you need to think about getting saved. You need to think about your own, the reality of your own salvation and that is it real? And the reason I'm giving this warning is that we live in an age in which people talk about what's your narrative? What's my narrative? We all have our own narrative. It doesn't matter if any of it's true. We're all living by allegories and narratives, and that's all fine. Whether or not it's true is irrelevant. These things actually happened. They are historical events, and they relate to the Christian. They relate to the person who knows the Lord, I think, better, much better. They make much better sense if you know the Lord. We have to go fast. <clears throat> in, in, um, why is this happening that it says Jacob went out from Beersheba to Haran? Because his brother Esau was so mad and Rebekah, the mother, said, you better get out of here. Your brother's got it in for you. You know why Clyde is smiling? Because Clyde has spoken on Jacob before, and I remember. And Clyde actually was involved in a camp named Peniel, which is in my message. That's why Clyde is smiling. <clears throat> Um, so, here's a guy, you know, and this, this, this uh, tricky guy named Jacob, who's pretty wily. You know, now sometimes, you know, the chickens come home to roost. You use your wiles, and then oh, things don't maybe turn out so well, and you end up running, and he's running. He's running way north. He's actually going to go to Turkey. 
and meet an Aramean named Laban, who's his uncle, because his brother's got it in for him. So he's on the run, and um, he finds this place, and it says, <clears throat> do I dare pull out the laser? I don't, well, maybe not. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set and he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep and he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and God and the God of Isaac. That's actually his father, Abraham's his grandfather. The land whereupon thou liest, to thee I will give it. And the, present, and, the, and the promise comes that this present place is going to be part of the promise actually made to his grandfather. Icon number one, Jacob's ladder. Fascinating. And Jacob awakened, awaked King James out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid, and he said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. So this is the beginning of a spiritual awakening in the life of this wily man. And what he sees in his dream is God. And God identifies himself as the God of his grandfather, the God of his father, and makes a promise. Doesn't that suggest a question? Am I going to be your God? Does it always guarantee that, like in our own Christian experience, so your grandfather was a Christian and your father was a Christian, does that mean you're all sorted out because your grandfather was a Christian and your father was a Christian that you've got it all squared away? Uh, no. We need to appropriate these things, as the children would say, for our own selves. We need to grasp these things in our own hearts and in our own lives. And in fact, this is the question. Will this wily man eventually learn not to re rely so much on his wiliness, but on the God that is not only the God of his grandfather and his father, but his own God by personal knowledge and personal experience? The I'll go back one. I have more to say. We all want to go to heaven, I think. We all would say that that is the end point that we're looking forward to, especially if we know the Lord. Did you ever ask the question about Jacob that when he saw a hole in heaven with a ladder up it, why he didn't get up and say, I'm out of here, nice knowing you. This is my opportunity to go directly to heaven. Uh, it's, you know, it's the fast track on the Monopoly board. I'm going to really, I'm going to make it all at once. 
And um, let's, let's take advantage of, of what's here. Why did he not do that? Well, that's a good question. I, I have perhaps some suggestions. He was afraid, actually, as much as anything, of the person at the top of the ladder. There's somebody at the top of that ladder. It's God. Are you in a relationship with God that you would welcome the opportunity to go and be with him? That's a good question. Jacob said, uh, I think I'm going to set up some stuff here, here. That's amazing. I'm going to set up right here. I'm going to pour oil on it and rename it. I like the new name. The old name sounds like it came out of Dr. Seuss. And, and he's going to memorialize this place. But he does it, interestingly enough, in a rather earthly manner. And as I alluded to before, this is a man who is actually, you might say, on a pilgrimage. The quintessential pilgrim in the Old Testament is Abraham, a figure that is revered by three major religions. That's his grandfather. He is the pilgrim of pilgrims in human history. And here's this man essentially also on a kind of pilgrimage, but it's different. And he needs to, he has a lot of things to learn. He's a wily fellow with a lot of things to learn. What about our Christian um, not so much experience, what is the theological reality? What is the theological reality that might, in some sense, correspond to this experience of Jacob? Because what actually, by becoming a Christian, by being born again, by coming to know the Lord, there is a transference, there is a translation that takes place which is better. It is more important and it is more, uh, more permanent and more powerful, it, everything about the reality of the Christian uh, salvation is so much better than the kind of picture that you might be reminded of in Jacob's ladder. I think of Colossians 1.12, giving thanks unto the Father who hath made us meet to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is a very, you know, the angels going up and down. I can't imagine how glorious it was. It's interesting that they are going up and down as if to say, you're going to join this? We're, we can go up and down. How about you? Would you like to come up? And he goes, oh, stay right here and make a pile of stones. But what about us? He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The theological reality, if I can use that phrase, is much, much better for the person who has trusted in Christ for his salvation. I think we all need some point in our lives where we can reference that. I'm going to use the word touchstone shortly, and I think within our Christian experience, all of us in our own way have a touchstone experience that we look back on in our Christian lives and say, I might not have understood everything at the time, but I go back to that point in my life. That was the point in my life when God got my attention. God really got Jacob's attention that night in that dream and spoke to him. We also, like so many characters, historical personalities in the Bible, often will have a reference point 
it's amazing how the range, if you talk to people, the range of personal experience that they would go back and say, it started then in my life, is a very wide range of personal experiences. Paul is going down the road to Damascus, and, and the, the, the Lord appears to him in a bright light that blinded him, and he was blind for a little while. He talked about that subsequently in his testimony more than once at the end of the book of Acts, as I was sharing with you not long ago. Think of Zacchaeus. I gotta, I've got I've, I've to get this man's attention. This is Jesus Christ. I, I've got a little short guy, just beating it down the road, climb up the tree, get ahead of him. And then the Lord came up beside it and said, Zacchaeus, and he was frozen in the tree. And he'll never forget that, that the Lord pointed him out up there in that tree. And that was the beginning of the change in his life, the beginning of his repentance. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, reading the book of Isaiah, written 750 years before, about the Lamb of God. What, what, what? How can I understand? Philip comes and explains it to him. And he says, well, there's nothing stopping me from being baptized. Let's stop this chariot. I see a, I see a body of water big enough for me to be baptized, and I want to be baptized right now. Philip never forgot that. That was the starting point of his life of faith. I mean, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch never forgot that. I'm sure Philip never forgot it either. So there are these, I think, reference points and this was quite a, a spiritual uh, awakening for Jacob. Number two icon, this injury. He goes up into Haran in Turkey. He finds a wife. It's not actually the one he wanted, but he marries her. Her name is Leah. Then he, he gets the one that he wants, which is Rachel. And the, uh, he marries her, marries both of them, and they are the daughters of his uncle Laban. And then he manages by his wiliness to get rich by the flocks. And um, his uncle comes to hate him. <laughs> Another sort of, you know, earthly push resulting in an earthly push back on this Jacob. And... Um, and he's warned, we, you better get out of here again. And he hightails it out of there with his wives, the daughters of Laban. And, and uh, you know, he's on the way back to Canaan. And he has another experience. And this is it in, Ge in, in Genesis 32. <clears throat> and Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, he being the angel. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. This is the angel saying this. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he, the angel, said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. Of course, the angel knew that. And he said, thy name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel, which means prince with God. He had come to a place where things are getting scary because he has found out the crisis, the new crisis, and he's fleeing, is soon going to be uh, beyond meeting Laban and resolving things with Laban and Laban going back home. There's soon going to be another crisis, and that is his older brother, 
has 400 soldiers and is soon going to meet him. And he's thinking, I think I'm in for huge trouble. And so he has another crisis moment. And what happens? Jacob, in this wrestling with the angel, is injured. He is injured. He receives a pain that he will carry with him for the rest of his life. He has contended with God, in a sense, and, has and the result of it is a permanent change in the way that he's going to walk. The previous experience was a change in the way he would think. And, and, and by analogy, I would say what we have here, interestingly enough, as a holy metaphor, is a change in the way he would walk. If you think about the Christian life in, that, in those terms, it seems to me that all of us have, in some sense, a bittersweet Christian experience. All of us carry with us something hidden that causes us to think, I am weak, but He is strong. We are all touched by God in a particular way. We may not show, you know, there was no scar from this. This was an internal effect that caused Jacob to sort of halt when he walked and to need a staff. So maybe the, the correct icon is actually here, the staff. But I want the beginning of the staff to be associated with this place called Peniel. There was a camp in Nova Scotia, I don't know if it still exists, called Camp Peniel, still exists. It means I, I, I saw God's face. And theologically, this would be called a Christophany, a theophany, a Christophany, where this so-called angel is actually the Lord Jesus Christ, appearing in hum human form before His incarnation in Bethlehem. And I think that it's, it's lovely, again, to have a point in our lives where we can say, God touched me, and I have never been the same since. I, you know... It, if, if someone were to say to Jacob, uh, why, do you, why do you limp? I noticed you have a limp. I have a feeling that Jacob would say, almost with a laugh, you know, that it he would have a, a sense of joy. Yes, that's where I grabbed God, and God grabbed me back and dealt with me, and I have never been the same since. And I carry with me, in my being, I carry two things. I carry the memory of that interaction of being grabbed by God as I grabbed God. And I carry with me the unforgettable little pain in my hip, which always reminds me that I'm weak, but He is strong. And that there was a starting point to that. We all need to come to the end of ourselves. I don't know within your Christian experience whether there was a point in which you came to the end of yourself. You know, we're looking at 400 of Esau's soldiers. You prepared to, that's, th those are really bad odds, 400 to Jacob's party, which had, had a lot of women and children. And he grabbed God and God grabbed him back and he never forgot it. And he carried the reminder of that with him for his life. We, in our, you know, um, I was going to say midlife Christian crisis, midlife crisis in the Christian sense, 
It's almost a, um, an inappropriate uh, phrase because, you know, you think about the modern use of this, this uh, midlife crisis idea, and it actually implies exactly the opposite of what I'm talking about, that, you know, you, f you feel a sense of what's the, why, you know, what, what is my marriage like, what is my life like, what is my job like, I can't make any sense of anything anymore, and I need to buy a red convertible to make myself feel better. So, you know, this, this kind of midlife um, lostness, is, is, I think, uh, the reason it existed. It is a 21st century experience. And um, by contrast, by contrast, I think that the Christian needs to be able to say, this is the nature of my Christian life. I carry a measure of pain that I actually is unique to me. I don't know what it is that you are carrying. I don't know what challenges you face in your life, what things are sort of like a stone in your shoe spiritually that, um, in a sense, make you think of God, but also at the same time uh, tend to make you less self-reliant, right? I'm, I'm at the end of myself. Well, that's good. That's good. It's good to remember that it is the Lord whom we must rely on in the middle of our lives, knowing, looking back, that we had an unmistakable encounter, and we had another encounter, and we can actually look forward with this staff to a future day. Any New Testament Epilara ideas? Paul had a tremendous revelation of heaven, and in order to keep him humble, the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 12, talks, Paul talks about how uh, he carried this, this painful thing with him. And we don't actually know what it is. There's various theories, but we don't actually know what it is. And he says, this is what I learned from God. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's where Paul was, and I think Paul probably had better and more and, and, and significantly amazing revelations more than you and I, and he had this kind of thing. This is a lovely verse. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God toward the end of the book of Hebrews. And the sitting down at the throne of God is actually in the very beginning of the first chapter, coming full circle. So, if we are going to be making progress, the writer of Hebrews used the word run, um, well, we are running by the grace of God. We may actually have a God-given limp, but that's okay. That's of God. That's to keep us humble. That's perhaps to make us a little bit more cautious with regard to our own wiliness. And the thing that we do need to do is to shed the baggage. You know, it's one thing 
to have a God-given limp. It's quite another to be carrying 50 pounds of rocks in a knapsack on your back for no particular reason other than you're fond of the rocks or fond of whatever thing is in the knapsack. So um, these are, I think, our principles that the believer can, can really relate to. I hope that these are verses that you have often reflected upon and will continue to f- reflect on. It's funny that icon number three is um, referred to in Hebrews 11.6 in the way that it is. Here, here we have, and Israel, his new name, stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn, And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life, my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. That angel is the Lord Jesus. And let my name be named on them. And let the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jumping to verse 21. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. He reflected. Um, I'll be 64 this year, uh, soon to be 38 years married. And not surprisingly, in my own heart and mind, I have a lot to reflect upon. And... um, that's inevitable, isn't it? If you are in the sort of middle of your life, I think it's good to be reminded that when you get to that point where you are leaning on your staff, you will be looking back on your life. You'll be looking back on your life on things that you can't change. You can't change. God and His grace can overrule many of the wrong decisions that we may have made, but the decisions can't be changed. We made them, and they had consequences. And we're all heading to that point in our Christian lives of reflection. But it's a good thing here, and it's a good thing for us, and it's a good example to say that He leaned on His staff and worshipped, worshipped. I look back, Jacob says, and I was a wily kind of guy, and sometimes I got into trouble, and sometimes I used my cleverness to personal advantage. But that's not what I think about Jacob, as, as speaking as Jacob. You know, that is not what is primary, I think, in Jacob's mind. What's primary in Jacob's mind is the blessing of God, the things that came from God, and the realization that through all of that experience, God was behind it. God was in it. Sometimes God overruled the situation, such as with the 400 soldiers that he was faced with. And he looks back on it all, and he says, essentially, God was with me. God came to walk with me, and I walked through my life, and I come to the end, and I'm very proud of my son Joseph. And I have many sons, And God has plans for my sons, and I'm able to worship God. What about about a, a New Testament 
well, I, I said six. It's actually the, toward the end of the chapter, sorry. 1121, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. See, and, and you cannot find a picture, at least I couldn't, of, you see, if I'm going to do this with my hands on my grandsons, that, that could be, what, what's, what's going on there? Like, if I, if I get up like this, and then I do this, that's, that's interesting. Um, maybe it looked more like this. Maybe it was sort of part walking staff and part crutch, so that you could use it to get up, and you could put it under one arm, and then you could bless your grandsons. We don't know for sure. But it's lovely that this man, who occupies almost half of the book of Genesis, can come to the end of his life and worship, looking back on a life that had uh, failures and challenges and the intervention of God, and still he can worship. What could the Apostle Paul say when the, when the end was in view? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I hope that we will all be able to say that when we come to the end of our Christian lives, the end of our, end of our lives. I find it interesting that, you know, you, you start out thinking about heaven and perhaps a just not strong enough. You start thinking about heaven and you end up going to heaven. <laughs> In the case of Jacob, that's what happened. He had an exposure to heaven, the reality of God, the reality of heaven, and he actually didn't jump at the chance to go there. But like all believers, we come to the end and we will, if we know the Lord, we will go to heaven and we will welcome it. We will look forward to it. It will be a, a, a full circle sort of thing, except that we won't be pouring oil on rocks on the ground. We'll be up there. This is my second to last slide and I thought about it perhaps in terms of places and stones. Um, the middle one is Ireland. I don't know why Ireland keeps coming up, but we have uh, the idea of a stone. There was a stone that he had as a pillow, and it's in, in our metaphorical English, we can say a touchstone is something that is used as a test of the, of the reality of something. I did not know that a, a mineral called lyddite is a silicaceous mineral that you can take gold and you can scrape it on it, and you can know whether the, the, the gold is very pure by what kind of streak it makes on the touchstone of Lydite. And that was Bethel, and that was kind of his spiritual awakening. And all of us have our own kind of point of spiritual awakening that we refer back to as the beginning. And then you have progress. You go through a life, and it could be quite a complicated life with many challenges and dangers and, and things that happen. And those are like milestones, and one of them was penile, which means the face of God up close in wrestling match. And we go through these, these uh, events, and that one caused Jacob to walk differently. And at the end, of course, uh, we will, if the Lord be not come, 
we will be down under the ground, <coughs> under a, perhaps under a tombstone. It depends what your last will and testament says to do about that. And his bones, although he died in Egypt, his bones and went back to Hebron. <coughs> and that site is, uh, it's called the Sanctuary of Abraham in the Islamic religion, and the Cave of Machpelah is in Hebron. And Jacob, once he came to that place, he, he died. He said, I'm dying, and then he did die. And he went to heaven. So this week, I hope that in your workaday life and in thinking about your Christian life and your Christian growth and your Christian experience, you will remember about the latter and you will remember about the injury and you will remember about the staff. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, help us to be men and women who seek always to follow you, to acknowledge you. We are weak, but you are strong. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ you have taken hold of us and you have transferred us from a kingdom of darkness into heaven, a place of light, a place of your presence. And we look forward to that day when we will be there. Help us, Father, to live accordingly. Help us to know the leading of your Spirit. And we ask that you would keep us humble in the coming week and help us to rely on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your attention.